Well, the story so far in Esther goes like this. Although we've just had Alex Gould do it for the kids, so I don't really need to now. But in case um, you weren't around, in chapter 1 of Esther, we had a glimpse of the glory of the king of Persia, Xerxes. So it was an incredibly large kingdom, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, and he has this extraordinary party, lavish, beautiful, he's showing off his wares, he's a peacock, and he's a man who employs bureaucracy and laws to control people, to modify their behaviour. And we saw he gets rid of Queen Vashti, she won't do as he wants, she won't parade for him. And so he removes her. Chapter 2, the search for the new queen. It's there we meet Esther, Mordecai. Esther is beautiful and orphaned. Mordecai, her older cousin, has looked after her. But they're Jews. They're in exile. They've been in exile for generations. They're at home, away from home. They've got Persian postcodes. But they still identify themselves with the people of God. And as we saw, Esther wins the competition. 12 months beauty treatment, sleeping with the king, and she wins, she becomes queen. And that's where we left it for last time. I'm going to read now Esther 3 and 4, just to give you a kind of broad direction as to where it's going. Chapter 3 is a plot to annihilate the Jews, and chapter 4 is the plan from Mordecai and Esther, at least the start of a plan, to rescue them. Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all that of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. 
Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learnt of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for them to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, she, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. One of the, um, one of the books I was reading on Esther recently spoke of a Sherlock Holmes novel entitled The Adventure of the Silver Blaze. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's, it's about the disappearance of a racehorse and the apparent murder of the rider. And Holmes solves the mystery by noting what did not happen. So at the end, the Scotland Yard detective says to Holmes, is there any other point to which you wish to draw my attention? Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the night time. The detective said, but the dog did nothing in the night time. 
And Haim said, well, that was the curious incident. That line, the curious incident of the dog of the night time, some of you will know is now a famous book by a guy called Mark Haddon. But it refers to the fact that the dog did not bark. It made no noise. The horse was stolen. There was no barking. You would expect there to be barking. And so Holmes solves the case by observing the dog doesn't bark, even though you would expect him to. Now you can ask me afterwards if you want to know what happens in the story. But as Alex was saying to the children and to us, that is the curious thing in Esther. There is this key character, right the way through the book, who is never on stage, who never speaks, who is never spoken to, who is never spoken of. I think that's especially true in these two chapters. The temperature rises, there's a a crisis moment, a turning point. People have to stand up and be counted. And so at the end, Esther places her hands in the life of an uh, her, sorry, her life in the hands of an unseen, unheard, unspoken to, unrecognised God. It's an extraordinary couple of chapters, with no mention of him, still. I think, in a sense, they are transitional chapters, because people's identities begin to change. We begin to learn more about them. Esther, I think, begins to act more like a courageous royal queen than a compliant beauty queen. So we're going to split it into chapters 3 and chapter 4, and then finally, as we've done in previous weeks, we will settle in on some application at the end. So chapter 3, firstly, the plot to annihilate the people of God. If you've closed Esther, I'd love you to open it again. We're in chapter 3, and it begins with this new character who ends up being a central player in the whole story of the book, a man called Haman. Now what do we, what do we learn of him well, he essentially becomes Xerxes' right-hand man. He's prime minister, elevated and given a, a seat of honour, higher than all the other nobles. He's at the top of the tree, and he's respected by many. In fact, there's even a law again. Remember Xerxes and his laws? There's a law that says you must respect him, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, which is interesting because that ought to just be a natural thing, didn't it? If you're, if you're prime minister and the king's having to tell people that you must respect him, maybe there's an issue there. There's a glimpse that he's not all he's cracked up to be if Xerxes needs to say respect, bow, honour. Maybe he's not as great as he thinks he is. So some would say that's perhaps why Mordecai refuses to bow down. Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Xerxes honours Haman. But Mordecai will not. Why is that? Maybe he doesn't respect him. It's probably not because of the Old Testament law. I think the law wouldn't restrict that kind of an honouring as far as I can see. And it seems that Esther will do something similar to the king later in the story. But actually I wonder if the strongest idea is there in the text anyway. How does he describe Haman? It's twice actually. He repeats it later on. He is an Agagite, which means he was a descendant of Ag the Amalekites. And if you're hot on Old Testament history, you remember the Amalekites were the arch enemies of Israel. Remember, Israel comes out of Egypt under Moses. Before they reach Sinai, the Amalekites attack them. They attack the people of God in the wilderness. And so God curses them to extinction. He, he commits himself to blotting out this people. Fast forward, and you get King Saul. Saul is given the job of enacting this sentence out, and he fluffs it. 
he didn't listen to God. He, he did what he thought was best, but it wasn't what God had told him. He, he spares the best of the animals. He spares the best of the people. He doesn't enact this sentence, but he's put himself in the place of God. And you see, Mordecai is from the line of Saul. We saw that in chapter 2 last week. And so I wonder whether for him to bow to an arch enemy is just too much, a step too far. And he's prepared to cause a stir. He causes such a stir that people ask him, well, who are you? What, what are you doing this for? What is going on? And so in verse 4, the secret is out. His identity is known. He nails his colours to the mast. And in Haman's mind, while well, everyone else has honoured me, Xerxes even has honoured me, and if you won't, then it's death. It's not just death for him, it's death for all the Jews. Not just the Jews of Susa, but the Jews of the entire empire, scattered throughout the nation. That's Haman's crazed plan. Complete annihilation of a people. When does he do it? Well, verse 7, you see he's casting lots. He's, he's consulting the poor. He's, he's consulting fate. And the lot seems to fall 12 months later. So he knows what he's going to do. He knows when he's going to do it. Now how? How is he going to bring about this plan? He might be powerful, but he doesn't have the kind of authority needed to enact this, to action the plan. So there we have Xerxes. And here we have Haman, sneaky political mover. And then there is Xerxes, puppet. Verse 8. There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Customs different from those of everybody else. They don't obey the king's laws. I wouldn't tolerate them. If it pleases the king, maybe let a decree be issued to destroy them. I'll give you some money. And he takes off his signet ring, hands over authority. And once again, as in previous chapters, this edict is sent out to everybody, informing them of the plan, every language, all sealed with the king's signet ring stamp. On one particular day, complete annihilation. Mordecai will not bow to me. I will destroy his people. Every last one. That'll teach him a lesson. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the, king of, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And the end of the chapter, you get this amazing contrast. In, in Susa, presumably the first recipients of the news, there's confusion and bewilderment. And then in the citadel, celebrations, drinks. And again, no mention of God. The dog is not barking. But Haman was wrong. He was wrong when he thought the future lay in fate, to be discerned by casting lots. As Proverbs puts it, Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
At this point, end of chapter 3, superficially it looks hopeless. But with God it is never hopeless. So chapter 4. Chapter 4, the plan to rescue the people of God. And it begins with the bewilderment having developed into wailing and mourning. As you might imagine, sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai is there leading the way in Susa, but not in the king's palace. You, you can't mourn there. You can't wear sackcloth and ashes, the heart of the kingdom. They're mourning and they're wailing. Again, we don't know who to. The dog is still not barking. And all around Persia, the pattern of mourning is seen in every province, in every district. Every language, weeping and wailing as the people of God are to be annihilated. It's a picture of a nation divided, a people group within the nation to be removed. Everyone else seemingly devastated. Everyone mourning. Except one. Someone who had not seen the edict. Somebody who had not heard the news. And so Esther's entourage... Head to Mordecai, verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. But he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Striking, isn't it? She seems to have become isolated from the people. Possibly the only person in all the kingdom who hasn't heard about the edicts from her husband. And how does she respond? I'm sure there were tears as well from Esther. How does she respond? She responds by wanting to give him clothes. Stop it. Cover yourself up. It's as if she's embarrassed by him. But then she gets a copy of the letter and she sees what's going on. And of course Mordecai has a plan. His plan is simple and it is this. You must go into the king's presence and you must stand in the place and you must plead for mercy for your people. But it's not as simple as that. He's the most powerful man in the world. And with all kinds of power, you can't approach power on your own terms. Even as his wife, she can't just waltz in when she feels like it. She's not been summoned to him for a month. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless he extends the gold scepter. Mordecai responds, interestingly, in two ways. Maybe he's maturing. He says, well, if you stay quiet, Esther, relief will come from another place. We don't quite know what's going on there. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. Maybe just hoping for the best. Maybe it is in the glimpse of the fact that in this horrible situation, Mordecai has started to trust the Lord doesn't mention his name. Still no barking dog. But perhaps there's a sense of confidence that things will work out. 
The second part of his answer is, well, why do you think you'll survive, Esther? Remember where you come from. Remember who you are. Why will you, of all the Jews, be the one who's not touched? The, the king's edict was for complete annihilation. Total. You might have prestige. You might have privilege. But you're part of the annihilation. Esther, Esther, maybe you're here for this. Maybe this is your time to stand up and be counted. Maybe this is what the Lord is doing. And I think here is the turning point in the book. Here she moves from from beauty queen to, to royal queen. Here she seems to grow. Verse 15, Then Esther said, sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Do you see, the table's turned. Esther has the plan now. She and her attendants, they will fast, as will all the people of God in Susa. Again, no mention of God. And then despite it probably meaning death, she will approach Xerxes. Esther begins to make commands and now Mordecai listens. Esther begins to act like a queen. So there's this plot to kill, chapter 3, to annihilate the people of God in exile. Chapter 4, then there's this plan to save. What does it mean for us? I want you just to zoom in on verse 13 to 16 of chapter 4. And just to latch on to two, two vital ideas to think about as we live the Christian life this week, to shape us in our understanding of God and what it means to live for him. The first one is to say that God is sovereign in bringing about his plans. That is, he puts his people in the right place at the right time for his purposes. Verse 14, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Who knows? We know. Countless readers over the years have known. We have seen the final page of Esther. We are in on the secret. We know how it pans out. God has raised her up to rescue his people in exile. She is there because he has put her there. I don't know if, if it struck you. It's very similar to, to Joseph at the end of Genesis as well. Bad times, compromise, sin. People of God's brothers sell off Joseph, but then he rises to a place of power and he will be one who will rescue the people of God. Of course, the difference with Joseph is that it's very clearly and obviously seen to be God working. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Here in Esther, the dog's not barking, but God is at work. We know he has put his person in the right place at the right time. Which is a huge encouragement for us to remember because it means his plans and his purposes are utterly unstoppable. They cannot be thwarted. He's put you in the right place at the right time for his purposes. 
It's striking, verse 14 is actually a passive verb, so perhaps slightly better than you have come to your royal position, I think might be you were brought to your royal position. God has put her there. She did not earn her beauty. She has not put herself there. She is a mixed bag. We have seen that in previous weeks. All that she has is from him. God gave her talents and gifts and looks. He put her there. And so I want to say God has put you where he's put you for a reason. I don't think this is just kind of isolated sovereignty. God just stepping in and sorting it out where there's a mess. It seems to me the story of the Bible is it's packed with God being utterly in charge, utterly good. Even in really dark times, even when we're not really sure what he's doing, he's still working out his purposes. Quietly. Remember that when life is hard where there are frustrations at work or family or your neighbours or your personal life, even in the midst of that, he is in charge. He is good. He is at work. Which I think brings a whole new level of significance to, to daily life. To your week. Perhaps, perhaps you are where you are for such a time as this. A bit of homework. I just wondered, why not this week set an alarm or, or some way of reminding you every day, perhaps even a couple of times a day, even just a beep on your phone, whatever it might be, to reflect upon that, the places that the Lord has called you. Maybe that he has put you in that job or that friendship or that street or with those housemates or that sports team, whatever it might be, for a reason, for such a time as this. It's a part of his plans and purposes. He is sovereign. Even in the dark times, he is bringing out his plans and purposes. Second one. God uses his mediator to rescue many lives. It is striking, isn't it? What is it that Esther does at the end of, the, end of chapter 4? He, she identifies with and she mediates for her people. Her people were completely condemned. Her people were hopeless. The edict was written, they were sentenced, there was a death penalty coming. It looked game over. But then she identifies with her people. She lowers herself to her people. And as she does that, she willingly comes under the condemnation too. Did you see? She says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand up, say who I am, identify myself with my people, even if it means I die. And because she does that, then she can mediate before the king. She can come before him. I take it that points us to Christ. Doesn't it have to? Just a glimpse of the one to come. We have one who, who lowers himself and identifies with his people in need. People who are under the death penalty without him. Identifies and mediates. We have one who empties himself for us, who becomes like us, who, who takes on our condemnation. He, he didn't say, if I perish. He knew that he would. He knew that was the plan. He knew that was why he was coming. 
He was the ultimate mediator who, because of his love for his people, would perish for his people. One person said this. Jesus is the true and better Esther. He didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one. He didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. People like you, people like me, who who by themselves stand condemned before God, and yet who, because of Christ, are rescued and forgiven. Let's pray.